This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Award-Winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of the hot hand in basketball, or rather, the fact that there is no such thing as a hot hand in basketball. Now, I have been watching basketball for the better part of the last 40 years. Primarily, I watch the NBA, but I also watch a bit of college basketball, and I will also attend an occasional high school game and for about 11 years I coached youth basketball when my three kids were little and like many fans I had also believed that there was a such thing as a hot hand in other words I believe that certain players can get locked into a shooting zone where they practically can't miss those players have even if only for a few minutes had a hot hand the evidence of it was right in front of my face I have watched Larry Bird seemingly go into a zone where it seemed that he was making every shot he put up the same was true for players like Reggie Miller Ray Allen Steph Curry Kobe Bryant Michael Jordan Tracy McGrady and Clay Thompson it seems that each of these players at one time or another has experienced the hot hand and I mean NBA coaches devise end of quarter or end of game plays in order to get the ball into the hands of the hot shooter. These coaches are making game altering decisions based on the fact that a particular player just made his last two or three shots in a row. But is the hot hand a real thing? I was as shocked as anyone to find out that there is no such thing as a hot hand. And I'm going to let that sink in for a moment. There is no such thing as a hot hand. So let me take a moment to define what is meant when we talk about a hot hand. The idea is that when a player makes two or three shots in a row, the chances of making the next shot go up significantly relative to the player's normal shooting average. So let me repeat that in plain terms. Let's take a hypothetical NBA player who has a career shooting average of 50% from the field. At this point, it becomes like a coin toss. When you toss a coin in the air, the chances of the coin landing on heads is 50%, and the chances of the coin landing on tails is also 50%. Of course, if you only toss the coin twice, there is a very real chance that you could get heads both times, or tails both times. Nobody would be surprised by that at all. However, if you toss the coin 10 times, or 100 times, or 1,000 times, the results will always be roughly 50% heads and 50% tails, assuming that it is an honest coin and that has not been manipulated in any way. Let us push that coin example a little bit further. Let us pretend for a moment that the coin has come up tails three times in a row. Now, most people feel that the next toss must be heads because you just got tails three times in a row. But that is not true. Every time a coin is tossed into the air, the chances are always 50% that it will come up heads and 50% that it will come up tails, regardless of the previous results. The statistics do not change because of prior results. The same is true for basketball shooters. Now, of course, we are taking into consideration that unlike tossing a coin, not all basketball shots are the same. Shooting a three-pointer is not the same as dunking the ball. At the end of the 2022 NBA season, the league as a whole shot three-pointers at a rate of 35.4%. Meanwhile, dunks were above 90%. 
Despite today's obsession with the three-pointer, it still holds true that the closer a player is to the basket, the higher the chances are that the ball will go in. Now, I totally understand the analytics associated with the idea of shooting a three-pointer. For a player like Steph Curry or James Harden, it makes sense to get behind the three-point line and shoot a three-pointer because the extra point received for making the shot more than makes up for the risk of shooting it from so far away. Now, let's get back to the main story of the hot hand in basketball. So, there is also another variable at play, and that is the opponent. It is not uncommon for an opponent to apply defensive pressure to a team's best shooter or highest score. However, even with all of that, a statistical analysis of NBA shooting can provide great insight. The specific study that I am using as the basis for this episode was an academic paper published in 1985 by three researchers. The paper was entitled, The Hot Hand in Basketball on the Misperception of Random Sequences. The lead researcher was Thomas Gilovich of Cornell University, along with Robert Voloni and Amos Zversky, both of Stanford University. All three of these researchers are highly respected in the area of economic, psychological, and statistical research. Their research paper covered four different studies that all speak to the validity of the hot hand in basketball. Now, the first thing they did was to survey a group of university students who were also avid basketball fans. Then they surveyed NCAA Division I basketball players and NBA players and coaches from the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, I'm not gonna bore you with the minutia of what the study revealed. I mean, I found every word of that research paper utterly fascinating, but I know that not everybody will. So I will only give you the short version. All three of these groups, the basketball fans, the college players, and the NBA players and coaches, all wholeheartedly agreed that the chances of making a shot go up if the player has made the previous two or three shots. All three groups completely believe in the idea of the hot hand. That is, the idea that a player's shooting percentage actually increases if that player has made the previous several shots. For the first section of their study, they took the shooting statistics of the 1980-81 Philadelphia 76ers, and I will share the results of that study right after the break. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back to the show, and as I mentioned before the break, we are talking about the idea of the hot hand in basketball that does not exist, despite what basketball players claim, even players and coaches in the NBA. 
So for the first part of that study, the research team took the shooting statistics of the 1981 Philadelphia 76ers. And the reason for that is that they were the only team in the NBA at the time that actually tracked every player's shot sequence. In other words, NBA teams kept track of how many shots each player took and how many shots they made for each game. But they did not track the actual sequence, as in saying, Maurice Cheeks made his first shot, but then missed his second shot and third shot, but then made his fourth shot, etc., etc. Every team tracks that now, but back in 1981, the 76ers were the only team that did that. And they have Harvey Pollack to thank for that. He was the 76ers statistician for nearly 60 years. In fact, I did a whole episode just on Harvey Pollack, the stat king. That is episode 107 if you want to go back and check that out. Anyway, the researchers were able to see the actual shot sequence for all of the 76ers players for that entire season. So let us just focus on Julius Irving, or Dr. J, who was the most popular player for the 76ers in the 1970s and 1980s, and he was also their leading scorer. His flat shooting percentage for the entire 1981 season was 52%, so that serves as our baseline. Now, let's look at a few different scenarios of the shots he took prior to the shot in question. Remember, his flat shooting percentage was 52%, so after one missed shot, he made his next shot at a 51% rate. Not all that different. If he had just missed a shot, his next shot also was at 51%. If he had missed his previous three shots in a row, then he shot the next ball at a 52% rate, his regular average. So what this tells us is that it does not matter how many shots he missed, whether it was one, two, or three, he will shoot the next shot at pretty much the identical rate as any shot he took all season. Statistically speaking, there is no significant difference in Dr. J's shooting if he had just missed a few shots. So, let us see what happens if Dr. J had just made a few shots. Does his shooting percentage increase significantly, signifying a hot hand? Again, his flat shooting percentage that season was 52%. If Dr. J had made his previous shot, his next shot goes in at a rate of 53%. If he made his previous two shots, then his next shot went in at a rate of 52%, same as his flat shooting percentage. Now, if he had just made his three previous shots in a row, his next shot dropped to a 48% rate. His percentage actually went down if he had just made three in a row. The researchers went on to show that for the entire 76ers team that season, there was no statistical significant change in the shooting percentage for any player based on the previous several shots. In other words, they showed mathematically that there is no such thing as a hot hand. Now, just like when tossing a coin, it is not unheard of to get tails three times in a row or even four times in a row. If you keep flipping that coin, you are likely to also get a sequence of seeing heads turn up three or four times in a row, but in the end, you will always get heads around 50% of the time and tails around 50% of the time. In the same way, Dr. J shot the ball at a rate of 52% for the entire season. Regardless of what his previous shots did, he still shot the ball at approximately 52%. Now, the next thing that the researchers did was go through the free throws of the Boston Celtics for the 1981-82 season. The question they wanted to answer was this, was a player more or less likely to make his second free throw, assuming he had already made the first free throw. Again, let us focus on just one player to illustrate the study. Larry Bird made his free throws that season at a flat rate of 86%. If he made his first free throw, he shot the second one at a rate of 88%. However, if he missed 
the first free throw, he shot the second one at a rate of 91%. Statistically speaking, there was no significant difference in his free throw shooting percentage. He actually had a very small negative correlation, meaning that he shot the second free throw at a slightly higher rate if he had missed the first one. Now, I just wanna be clear about something when I say significant difference. Now, I am not talking about my opinion or the opinion of the research. There is a concept in mathematics called significant difference that can be calculated when processing statistical events, like a coin toss or shooting a basketball. Now, I'm gonna go through the next part very quickly. The researchers did a controlled experiment with the men's and women's basketball team from Cornell University. They had all of the varsity players from both teams participate. It was 26 players in all, and they had them each shoot 100 shots, and the researchers tracked the sequence of makes and misses to see if there was a hot hand. Was a player more likely to hit a shot if they had just made their previous shot? After analyzing 2,600 shots, that is 100 for each player, they concluded mathematically that there was no significant change in the player shooting percentage when the player made the previous shot. In other words, there is no such thing as the hot hand. Again, the researchers provided this in three different ways. So how does that explain game-winning clutch shots taken by players like Larry Bird or Michael Jordan? Well, unlike tossing a coin, there are other variables. Teams can run set plays using a series of screens in order to get their shooter a clear, wide-open shot. A wide open shot goes in a few percentage points higher than a challenged shot. So the idea is to get your shooter as wide open as possible for that clutch shot. But like Michael Jordan once said, he had been trusted 26 times to take the game winning shot and missed. So here is my explanation for the hot hand. Just like when tossing a coin over and over, there'll be times when you will get four heads in a row or four tails in a row. Just like when tossing a coin, there are times during a basketball game when a player will make four shots in a row or miss four shots in a row. But when a player makes four in a row during the first half of the game, it does not really get that much attention. But when that same player makes four in a row during the last two minutes of a close game, well, he is now considered to have the hot hand and be a clutch player. As a fan, we may too much of these situations. In the end, the player shoots what his normal percentage is. So the idea of a hot hand is really just a player making three or four shots in a row and having that event coincide with a clutch moment like the last two minutes of a close game. The reason guys like Michael Jordan and Larry Bird appear so clutch is that they had so many opportunities to shoot during the end of a close game. They made plenty of those clutch shots, but they also missed a number of those close shots too, if we are being honest about it. Now, let me give you one final example. Game four of the 1987 NBA Finals between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics. The game was played in the old Boston Garden. Kareem had just dunked the ball for a one-point lead with under a minute to play. On the next possession, Larry Bird made an extremely clutch three-pointer to take a two-point lead with only 12 seconds left on the clock. The hot hand was at work for Larry Bird. After a late Kareem free throw, the Lakers had the ball while only being down one. And that was when Magic Johnson made his famous Junior Junior Sky Hook with just two seconds left on the clock to put the Lakers back up by one. The Celtics called a timeout and drew up a play for Larry Bird. With James Worthy guarding him, Larry Bird cuts toward half-court line and then immediately cuts back to the corner. He caught the pass cleanly and turned to shoot the ball on a wide-open three-pointer for the win. 
and he missed. They could not have drawn it any better. Larry Bird even complained to the Lakers coach Pat Riley and said, I can't believe you left me that wide open. Back in 1985, when this particular research paper was published, it caused a huge stir in the basketball community. What do you mean there is no such thing as a hot hand? When Red Arbach got a hold of the results, he was asked by reporters what he thought of it, especially considering that his own Celtics players were part of the study. He completely dismissed the research and said that these PhDs have no idea what they're talking about. They were not basketball people. Now, they cannot deny what Red Arbach had seen many times with his own eyes. The research could not dispel what Arbach knew to his core that the hot hand was a real thing and he had seen it many times. Of course, I would not expect Arbach to say anything different and despite the fact that he was factually wrong, I like the guy for sticking to his position. As we get ready to wrap up this episode, I'm sure that you are thinking exactly what I was thinking when I first read the paper. This cannot possibly be true. This goes against my own experience as a fan. But as I read the paper for myself, I could not get past the math. The math held up. It was clear as day. Despite everything that I had seen with my eyes and my unreliable memory, the math does not lie. Or as Rashid Wallace once said, the ball don't lie. Either the ball goes in or it doesn't. And these researchers tracked that to see how often the ball went in after it had just gone in. By the way, the academic paper is only 20 pages long. It does not take that long to read. So I'll put a link in the description to the paper in case you want to read it for yourself. Now, this was a fun episode for me. I love statistics. Math has always been my best subject in school, and I had a lot of fun with this research paper. So that is it for today. Join us next time when we share a profile on the great Oscar Robertson. At the time that he retired, many considered him to be the greatest player of all time. And yet, hardly anybody talks about him like that anymore. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon.